Palm Sunday always comes in, I don't know, maybe it's the name, Palm Sunday, but every time I, I think, okay, I can preach about Palm Sunday, I kind of get happy, like, oh, Palm Sunday, palm trees, it's nice, like, uh, probably thinking, like, Jesus entering into Jerusalem, it's a, it's a good thing, like, everyone's happy, everyone's good, but then every time I read the text, this is probably my sixth or seventh time preaching on Palm Sunday, um, but every year, every time I, I preach it, it's always that, that warm, fuzzy feeling, like, oh, Jesus entering into Jerusalem as the king, but the more I read the text, Every time it's so humbling, it's so sobering um, with what this text has to bring to us today. And I think every every year that we enter into this week, this Passion Week, this week um, before the crucifixion, before Easter, this week where Jesus is doing the bulk of his teaching, where he's just kind of explained to his disciples that he has to die, and, and he's already talked to them about these things. He's already explained to them that he's he needs to die, but this is the week in Jesus' ministry that he's so frank with them. He's no longer talking in these parables. He's no longer talking in, in cryptic language. He is simply just telling his disciples, prepping them during this week, I'm going to die. I'll be gone for a little while. I'll come back for you. I'll come back. And it's, it's going to be good. But before it gets good, it's going to be bad. And he kind of braces them, prepares them. Things are going to look ugly. Things are going to look terrible. The disciples don't get it. They don't understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. If anything, they're kind of like, treat, I don't know, this, they're just treating Jesus like, yeah, 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 Jesus, we get it. That's, that's what you, the plan is. It's going to look bad before it gets good. It, you, know, you say you're going to go away, but you're always going to be with us because why? You're the Savior of the world. You're the Messiah. We've seen you do all these miracles. We've seen you do all these amazing things. And so, of course, it's going to be good. Of course, it's going to be great at the end. Uh, so, yeah, it's going to be bad, and it's, it's going to be hard. But you know what? It's not going to be that bad because of how good it's going to be. Uh, I don't know if you've ever uh, met with some people that have grown up in the church a lot, but I think one of the, maybe my, my I'm a cynic at heart. I'm, I'm a very cynical person. I don't know if you can get that when you see preach, but uh, in real life, you know, just gets to know me. I'm a very cynical person um, in the sense of when being around Christians, and I'm not, not, not to not Christians at all. We're all Christians. I mean, we're, we're all Christians. But one of my biggest pet peeves is, is when people sugarcoat things too much. Um, and, and I remember this this happened a lot being even a pastor, but in general, just growing up in the church, when, when, when bad things would happen, I mean, even the small bad things, but when just some bad things that happen and it doesn't go well with me and I'm just struggling and I'm in struggle, you know, like, you're kind of just in that moment where you're just frustrated. And you're just like, oh man, life isn't that great. And then you have a good Christian person come in and say, hey, well, God is still good, right? And you're like, man, I just failed my test. But it's okay, God has a plan for you. Like, it's all going to be good at the end. Man, I just lost my job. You know, I got fired. It's all good because I'm sure God has a different job for you that's going to be even better than that job. And it's this, it's this where everything gets sugar-coated, everything is this, there's a silver lining to everything. That it kind of, at a, at a certain point, I remember there was even one time with a friend, um, I, I had just gotten dumped by a girl, and I was like, just in the, in the dumps, and he's like, it's all good, she wasn't even good for you. And you're just like, man, come on, just, just deal with me, like, I'm hurting right now. I just need you to just be by me. Stop telling me that things are going to be good. Things suck. And I think what ends up happening every time I go into the, 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 the concept of Palm Sunday 
Because I feel like even Jesus was feeling this with his disciples. He's trying to explain to them very clearly, I'm going to die. I'm going to have to suffer. I'm going to have to bear the sins of the world. And what we see even later is that there's a time where he's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's praying in his garden and he's asking his friends, he's asking his disciples, would you stay up and pray with me? Would you endure this with me? Would you go to the Father with me? And his disciples do what really bad friends do and they fall asleep. While Jesus is bearing the burden, the suffering, the frustrations that he has in his life, the disciples take it far too lightly and they fall asleep. Christianity is not about sugarcoating It's not about just jumping to conclusions, just jumping to the end. It's not about saying, hey, God's going to make it all good, and so your suffering doesn't matter that much because the ending is fine. What we need to embrace during this week before we approach Easter is that we have to go through suffering, we have to go through the bad, and not just sugarcoat it, not just ignore it, not just walk away from it, but we have to embrace it so that when God does redeem it, we understand the depth of the redemption. The depth of what had to be endured so that God would be able to redeem all the evil and the brokenness in this world. Being a Christian is not about being an idealistic person. It's not about being disconnected from reality when bad things happen. It's not about just us saying, well, you know what? God has a plan. It's all going to be good. It's all fine and dandy. And so these bad things we can just kind of walk away from. Jesus is teaching his disciples that he is on the road to death. Palm Sunday is a, is, a, is a time when they lay down these palm branches and they say, welcome the king of Israel into the kingdom. Jesus understands that the people do not know what they're saying. That yes, he is the king of Israel. He is the king the world, but he is not entering as a king. He is entering as a lamb into the slaughter. He is entering, he, this, this, this road down by the perception of the people is, is that the king has come, the Messiah has come, and welcome in, but really from the perspective of Jesus, he's walking in like a lamb, ready to be killed. Let's read from the text, and it's found in John chapter 12. And we're starting from verse 12, and, and, and I don't know if you know, but we're going through the book of John, the, the gospel of John, and, and this really is, we're kind of, you know, bouncing back and forth between the various things, and last week we talked about Peter's denial of Christ, and, and how Jesus was even able to redeem him, and lead him back into, into this place where he didn't understand things that well, pre-crucifixion, but post-crucifixion, post-resurrection, Peter started to understand a little bit more about what the redemption of Christ is. But let's read today from John chapter 12, starting from verse 12. It says, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him been with him when he, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. We're going to end there, or stop there for, for right now. 
this is a very interesting scenario that I've kind of gone through my head many times. Uh, like I said, every year we approach this text. We approach a text talking about Jesus enter into the city gates, the city of Jerusalem. And, and, and this is welcoming party that's just so happy. Everyone's so happy. Isn't that great? Isn't that dandy? Like, don't you wish, like, I don't you wish that our church was happy like this all the time, but every time we came to church, we just lay down palm trees and say, Jesus, welcome to our church. Welcome! And we're going to have a party. Everything's going to be great. Everything's wonderful because why? You're here, Jesus. You're here in our midst. Little did these people know that only a short while after, again, this is a Palm Sunday, the crucifixion, the crucifixion happens on Good Friday. A mere matter of a few days, this same crowd that was welcoming Jesus into their lives, that was welcoming Jesus into the city, into be their ruler, as they're calling him the king of Israel, as they're welcoming him this way, a few short days later, this is the same crowd that's saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. In a very short while, and I think what ends up happening is, is, is that Jesus did not fit their definition of what the Savior was supposed to be like. Jesus did not fit, fit into their understanding of who God was supposed to be. I don't think they were far mistaken. They, they, they knew Jesus was calling himself the Messiah. They knew Jesus was calling himself the Son of God, equal to God. They understood of what Jesus' messages were, and they believed it because they saw him raise guys from the dead. They saw him heal people. They saw him multiply food. They saw him do these amazing things. And the disciples also witnessed these same miracles. And so this guy who was able to do these miracles and these amazing things, they're saying, yeah, of course you're God. We've seen all of your miracles, we've seen your ministry, it's super valid. And so you know what? As you enter Jerusalem, you are the king, we're going to welcome you this way. So what is it that caused them to turn on him so quickly? I think it's one of two things. And I think all of us deal with one of these two things. The first thing is that we have a very low view of a high God. We have a very low view of a high God. And the second thing I believe is that we have a very high view of low gods. A high view of low idols. And what I mean to say in this is that when you follow God and you have a high view of a high God, you follow God saying, I will follow you. You are smarter than me. You are more wise than me. Whatever direction you put me in, I'm here just to follow your wisdom, follow your logic, follow your knowledge. And yeah, it goes totally against what my knowledge is and my logic is. The Bible, when you read it, there are times where you're like fighting with it. You're like, this doesn't make much sense. But a very high view of a high God is saying, regardless of how smart I am, regardless of how logical I am, I'm going to trust that even though it may not make sense to me now, even though it doesn't go well with me now, I trust you. A very low view of a high God, a very low view of a high God says this, unless I understand it, I'm not going to believe it. Unless it makes sense to me, I'm not going to follow it. Unless it goes well with my soul, I'm not, I'm not going to partake in this. See, the disciples, I believe, had a low view of a high God pre-crucifixion. 
I believe the disciples had a low view of a high God pre-crucifixion. That Jesus just made sense to them. And so it was easy to follow him because they're able to see from their low perspective this high God and say, yeah, God, Jesus, you are great. Jesus, you are wonderful. You are the Savior of the world. You can do all these amazing things. And so, of course, I'm going to follow you. And last week we talked about Peter's denial of Christ. And when I think more about Peter, and I think about Palm Sunday, just imagine the disciples following Jesus. Jesus entering in on his on donkey. He's going into the city. Everyone's saying, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And could you just imagine the disciples following Jesus? Like, Jesus gave all his praise, and then walking behind him, so like, hi. You know, like, probably rice is being thrown at them, and it's like a wedding. It's like, oh, hi, oh, it's good seeing you. Imagine what they're feeling. Jesus is being welcomed into the city as the king of Israel, as the savior, the promised Messiah. And could you imagine just how much pride the disciples feel? Oh, yeah. You know, I was with Jesus from the very beginning. Uh, hey, I was one of the guys that Jesus called. One, I'm one of the twelve. <laughs> so please, before you talk to Jesus, come and talk to me, and I'll maybe I'll okay. You, you, now you can talk to Jesus. You have to come through me before you go to him, because I am one of the VIP. See, the disciples had a very low view of a high God. They were willing to follow him, and that's wonderful and that's great. But what we see happen, especially when it comes to Peter, is when all of a sudden their high God. They didn't follow their logic. Didn't follow their game plan. They begin to deny him. The game plan, I think, for Peter is that you're the Messiah, Jesus. So if they arrest you, they have no power over you. You can just break those handcuffs. You can break the chains because you're the breaker of chains. You're the one who's able to free us of bondage. And so even if they arrest you, it's going to be okay. And what we saw last week is that they arrested him and Peter chose force because that was his view of God is that you cannot arrest the Son of God. How dare you? And he begins to chop off ears. He begins to attack and become aggressive because again, he had a low view of a high God. He thought it has to make sense to me before I can follow See, Peter's fault Peter's fault was he didn't understand that God's plan sometimes doesn't make sense. Let me say that again. Sometimes God's plan doesn't make any sense. And we have to grasp this. The crucifixion made zero sense from a human low perspective. Imagine we're there. Imagine we are all, and we all claim to be Christ followers, imagine you are there without the knowledge of what happens after. Imagine you're just there seeing Jesus being hung on a cross, being nailed to a cross. How can you say that you understand that? It makes zero understanding. This good man, this, this moral man, this, this leader that has been able to do all these miracles, he's being murdered. Imagine what it's like when they bury his body. And it cements the reality that Jesus is dead. That Jesus is gone. It makes zero sense. And yet, and yet, it was the will and plan of God. A very low view of a high God. 
it's problematic, but in the same way, a very high view of low gods, a high view of idols, is equally problematic. You see, the crowd, they were also there. They were there because, why? They, they, they heard about Jesus, or they saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. It's the same crowd. And they're the ones who, while Jesus is entering into the city, they're whispering to one another, or probably even shouting to one another, hey, you know this Jesus guy? You may not know him, but he's the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. And you know what? I was there. I saw it with my own eyes. And, and you know what? If he raised Lazarus from the dead, imagine what he's going to do next. And they begin to become so excited about the possibility that Jesus is going to go down the street. And, he, and again, I can't even imagine their expectation of what Jesus would do. That Jesus would raise his hands up and as he's walking, everyone who's sick on the side would just get healed. Imagine. Now everyone would just be healed and all their ailments would be gone because why? They had heard that Jesus did those miracles in the past. And so as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, imagine they're thinking, okay, all the homeless are going to get all the sick are going to be healed. All the blind are going to see. It's going to be great. It's going to be wonderful. My problem, again, with this, their focus was so much on the gifts, so much on what Jesus did. They failed to recognize who Jesus was. They focused so much on what Jesus did that they forgot who Jesus was. Jesus was not there to proclaim he was not there to proclaim that he was going to sit on a throne and rule in that way. He came to proclaim that he was here to serve, not to be served. He, he proclaimed, he explained that he had to die, he would have to be killed so that he could be re resurrected and raised again from the dead. That only through him can we experience eternal life. And yet the people ignored what he had to say and were more, were more enamored by what he was able to do. They were more enamored by the stories of blessings. So what? Their God became the blessing, not the one who gave the blessing. It became more about, hey, if I follow Jesus, then good things are going to happen, and I want good things. I want good things to happen to me, so I'm going to follow Jesus as long as good things are going to happen to me. So really, what they're following is not Jesus. What they're following is the blessing. And I've seen this happen in churches far too often, and it makes me far too frustrated because I find myself being tempted to do the same, that we can follow the blessing instead of the one giving the blessing. This happens far too often, and this is what these people were doing. And as soon as those blessings stop flowing, Guess what? We instead of following Jesus, we begin to say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. I had a friend, I mean, really less of a friend, I wasn't that close with him. He was more of an acquaintance, but he's someone I went to church with for, for quite a while. We were on a retreat, and we were in the same small group during the retreat. And he said something that felt that was more troubling to me. It, I mean, again, not, not really knowing him very well, and just, just kind of seeing him in the back of the church. He said, I won't believe in God until I win the lottery. And, and again, it, it, it was one of those things where I, at the time I was, I was you know, really young, and I, I, I was just an intern at the church, and I, I was just kind of working at things, and I was like, how could you say that? First of all, I was like, you're never going to win the lottery. I don't know if you knew the odds. Um, you're not going to win the lottery. And so essentially you're just saying that I'm not going to believe in God. And, he, and that's why I told him, I was like, so you're not going to believe in God. 
He's like, no, no, no. I absolutely believe I will win the lottery. He said, every time I buy a ticket, I absolutely believe that it's the winning numbers. And the day that I get the winning numbers, I will give you know, a, a large portion to the church, I will give it, I will give it away, and then I will believe in God. And that will start my relationship with him. I'm saying I'm like, dude, I don't think you're ever gonna get what you want. But the more I reflect over even that conversation and just how bothered I was in that, I realized that I have the exact same heart. God, if you don't do this right now, if you don't help me right now, if you don't fix this right now, if you don't bring redemption like you promised, I'm, I think I'm going to need to take a break. I'm, I'm kind of done. I, I don't want to go. I don't want to do all this. I don't want to do anything unless I get this. If I get this, then we can talk. Then we can start, you know, having a relationship. If I have kids, if I get married, if I am able to get a good job, if I have a nice house, then once all these blessings are there, then I'll be able to serve you. Then I'll be able to follow you. If I get into the right schools, if I, if I have the right friends, if everything in my life is blessed, then I'll start committing my life to you. Who is the Lord in that situation? Who is God in that situation? What is the most important thing in that situation? I would like to argue the most important thing in that situation is the blessings. Like, it's, about getting, it's about getting the things that we want. And let me tell you, the, the reason why this is so hard is I, I visit people in the hospital. I see people in sickness. I see people on their last legs. I see people broken and frail, dealing with marital problems, dealing with family problems, dealing with friendship problems. And, uh, and these people, and these, these ones going through this, this hard time, their focus, of course, is that things would get better. Of course it is. Things would be blessed. Of course it is. This is where we have to empathize with that feeling. Is that things seem to be broken and we want God to come in and save the day because what? Jesus is my superhero. Jesus is better than anything else. And so of course Jesus can fix all of my brokenness. But I think what we do too often is we put even the blessings on a pedestal far higher than we put God in a seat of worship. It needs to be fixed is to understand regardless of the blessings in my life, I will worship you. I will worship you in all things. You know, yesterday I was able to officiate a wedding. And, and during the wedding, there's even that part of the vows where, where they repeat, but it, it, it's in sickness and health and richer or poor. It's in all things. I will, I will be, I, I will, I made this commitment to you. It doesn't matter if you're the poorest person in the world. It doesn't matter if you're the richest person in the world. It doesn't matter if you're the sickest or the most healthy. I will love you in all circumstances. We all understand that that's the beauty of love. But when we talk about our love to God, we say in richness, in health. But if I'm poor, but if I'm sick, if I'm alone, if I'm tired, if I'm weary, if I don't feel like it, I'm not in this. I'm not in this relationship. Only if you do what I want you to do, only if you if you make sure that in everything that you are on your A game, God, only if my life is going exactly the way that I want will I follow you. And if it goes off the rails, you need to fix it, and then after you fix it, then I'll come back. I'm sorry, that's a very dysfunctional relationship very dysfunctional relationship, and yet this is what we see happens to Jesus. 
is that when things are going well, he's doing these miracles, he's doing these amazing things. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Welcome, Jesus. But the moment he comes, and he says, I'm not here to overthrow the Romans. I'm here to overthrow sin. I'm here not, not to be the victorious king coming in and, and saying that I am now here to rule and reign over your lives. But he said, instead, I'm here to die for you in your stead. I'm here because you are deserving of this death, of this penalty, and instead I'm going to die in your place. The people begin to turn. And they said, what? You're not going to give me? You're not going to give me healing right away? What, Jesus? You're not going to overthrow the Romans who are oppressing us? What, Jesus? You're not going to even overthrow the Pharisees in the temple? You're not even going to beat them up a little bit? Jesus, you know how much we get taxed? You're not going to take away taxes? Jesus, you're not even here to show your strength and power to everyone. You're here to what? To surrender? To get arrested? To die? I'm done. I'm done with you. So until you figure your stuff out, Jesus, I don't believe you. I am not associated with you. I want nothing to do with you. Please leave me alone. Come back when things get Palm Sunday is so, so hard to take sometimes. Because I realize I put these same stipulations on these people. And I don't want to be religious. I don't want to be legalistic in any way. And the reason is, is because I, I don't understand God. I don't understand the Bible. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense sometimes. The irony is, is I hang around a lot of theologians, I hang around a lot of professors, other seminary students, I hang around, I have friends who are pastors, and we talk about it. And you know, there comes a point where you, you read the Bible so much, and you, you, you feel like you know and understand God's will, you understand the gospel, you understand all these things, that we begin to have this arrogance about us. The pulpit becomes a place of arrogance because it's saying, I know God, I know God's will, so come and follow, and you'll get it. Eventually, you'll understand it. It'll make sense to you. And once it makes sense to you, then you can follow. Church, there are things that happen that just make no sense. There are things that happen that make so little sense. But it makes you just want to throw my hands up and say, I quit. I'm done. Until, God, you make sense of this all, I'm done. It's too much of a burden on me. But see, that makes me God. That makes me the one that I'm worshiping. It makes the things that I'm looking at, the things that I'm worshiping, these idols that I've created. Instead, the faith that we believe in is not that we make sense of it all. It's that we trust that God will, in his time, on his timetable, according to his will, according to his word, that he will do what he said he will do. And I trust in that. But it's not dictated by how I want it to be done. It's dictated by how he wants it to be done. When we say that our church is to be united, we are not united. We are not united by things of this world. We are not united by things or even by people. You are not united because you have a pastor. Please 
Never believe that lie. A church is not united because there's a guy that you follow, or there's a building that you reside in, or that there's a common demographic or common social economic class that you're in. You are united purely on Christ and Jesus and what he's done. And please don't have the arrogance to think that you understand the will of God. To understand and, and say, oh, it all makes sense to me. You don't understand the depth of suffering our Savior had to go through. You don't understand the burden that Jesus had to bear. And just because we have Easter and Good Friday every single year doesn't mean that you're ever going to grasp the depth of his sacrifice. But as we learn, it's not about the knowledge. It's about the love. And every year, I hope every year as we enter into the season, it's not, oh, I get it now. Jesus died for me and he rose again three days later. It makes sense. It's good. I'm good. Oh, every year, there's a little extra sliver of truth that would make a little more sense. That as we are in our lives that are hard and busy and tiresome and weary, that as we see Jesus hanging on a cross, as we see him going through enduring suffering, that we would understand a little bit more. You know, there is a part of me. There is a part of me that truly just wants to understand God and everything. Like, how nice would that be, right? If you're like, I know God's will, and you're so confident, like, this is God's will for me, this is what's going to happen, and, and, and here, let me prophesy, and let me, let me say all these words, that this is what's going to happen. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to see your whole life laid out before you and say, oh, that's how every single thing would go. I'm learning to want something even more than that knowledge. More than wanting to know what happens in every aspect of my life and to be able to predict all the ups and downs and to be able to see all that to happen, what I want even more than that is to stay close to God in all of it. I would much rather be close to Christ my whole life, not knowing whether I'm going to make a left turn or a right turn or keep going straight. I would rather be close to Christ than have everything planned out and for me to know everything that's going to happen and be far from Him. The disciples had the experience this firsthand. Jesus had even explained what was going to happen and what was going to perspire and, and, and told them the future. He told them the prophecies about how he was going to die. The disciples knew what was coming and they saw it coming and they chose to walk away. Thankfully, it was just for a short time. But they walked away. And yes, Jesus did redeem. Jesus will redeem will make right what was made wrong. But it's on his timing, not even theirs. But what they learned, what you see the disciples post-crucifixion, is that it wasn't about them anymore. The irony was, Jesus was God and he was raised from the dead. He went to go at the right hand of the Father. And now the disciples are saying this, so what do we do now? What is our job now? And the beautiful thing was, their job was to just listen to 
to what God had to tell them and just to be faithful in what God had to say. And even there are times where it makes zero sense because let me tell you, most of the disciples except for one were crucified or murdered or, or, or martyred for their death, stoned to death. They all ended up with a very bleak and very grim ending. Wouldn't you think that if you're one of the 12 disciples, that you would, you would end up with a nice retirement plan, at least? I mean, you would think, right, that the first disciples, the apostles, would end their lives in a very comfortable way because God is a God of blessing. Isn't that what the dream is? Isn't the, isn't the dream so that you can retire and you can go and, and live in a nice house and a nice place? Isn't that the dream? No, the dream for the disciples once Jesus died and rose again, was nothing to do with the things of this world, was everything to do with them being close to Christ. And for Peter, the man who denied Jesus three times, historically what we know about his death is that he was, he was sentenced to die on a cross as well, to be crucified. And what he said was that I don't want to be crucified right side up, I want to be crucified upside down because I'm not worthy to die the way my Savior died. You see, there is this aspect of the Christian walk that I'm afraid a lot of us are afraid of embracing. It's a step of faith rather than a step of logic. It's a step towards Christ rather than towards the things of this world. Too many times our focus is so much on my happiness, my comfort, when Jesus' focus is on your happiness and your comfort. But he understands something. Your happiness and your comfort mean nothing unless you can secure it and ensure it for all of eternity. The beautiful thing about following Jesus is that, yes, it may be uncomfortable for a time. It may be stressful for a time. It may be hard for a time. But for the rest of eternity, that we will be able to reside with him, walk with him, live with him, love him. In a place where there is no tears, that every tear shall be wiped away. All the conflicts will melt away because the Lord is at the center. I want you to be blessed. I want you to experience blessing. I want you to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the Lord. I want us to welcome Jesus every single Sunday into our church, but I don't want us to dictate what he does. We do not dictate the blessings of God. God dictates the blessings of God. So no matter what comes our way, it's about our surrender. Jesus, I accept it. Jesus, I accept whether it's blessing or whether it's tribulation, whether it's pleasure or whether it's trials, I accept it and I need your help in both areas. You are not strong enough to live this life on your own. You are not strong enough to go with this road by yourself. So Jesus promises that he will walk with you. The Holy Spirit resides in you. The Father already knows what will happen to you. The question is, will you trust him, or are you going to rely on your own logic? Truly, this is, this is just the beginning of this week. We're going to go into Good Friday with somber hearts, solemn hearts, because that's the last thing we would expect the Savior of the world to do, to die for us. But I, I hope you know that the story ends well. The story ends with our Savior being raised from the dead. Meaning that even death can't hold us back. 
Death cannot hold Jesus back. That there is no final word from death, but the final word is given by Christ. I want to make you resilient in your life. And I want us all to experience the blessing of God. Father, we thank you for this day. I thank you for your love, for your sacrifice. And as we enter into Easter, celebration of your resurrection. Father, I pray that it would lead us out of our funk, it would lead us out of our own tribulations and trials, and really we would look at you knowing that you are the high God, and our perspective is so low. So Father, I pray that we can surrender and submit under your logic, under your understanding, not relying on our own strength or our own intelligence. Father, I pray that you would help us to get rid of our idols in this world, the blessings that we have called so good, when truly the only thing good in this world is you. Father, I pray that we would not be hindered or put into bondage by materialism, but instead our focus would remain true, that a life without you is meaningless, and a life with you is everything. So Father, be with us. We love you. In Jesus' name.